on our 83rd study in the Theological Seminar of the Air, the lesson that deals with the matters of forgiveness, sometimes referred to as remission. As we've said in previous broadcasts, the great evangelical doctrines of salvation that occur in the New Testament are never connected with the book of the Acts. They are found rather in the theological sections of the New Testament, which are Romans and Galatians. And the uh, paucity, as they say, of material, the lack of material, on New Testament salvation is apparent by modern radio and television preaching, by the fact that you never hear sermons about these great themes of New Testament salvation. Instead, we've had the maudlin philosophy of Chicago, New York, and Hollywood substituted with such common expressions as uh, sharing experiences and sharing blessings, and no preaching, you understand, sharing, and sharing this and sharing that, the let-down, watered-down position of the ecclesiastical coward who is afraid to preach at the unsaved man and preach at the backslidden Christian. So instead of these biblical expressions, we have such expressions as sharing this and sharing that and let me share with you and the share, share, the common shares of Madison Avenue, the sharing of the communal fund, the sharing of income, the sharing of property, of course, is the platform in the Communist uh, Party set out by Karl Marx. Uh, you don't read in the Bible about anybody sharing their experience with anybody. It's a non-biblical phrase. There isn't one verse in the New Testament or a series of verses anywhere in either Testament that speaks of anybody sharing Christ or sharing God or sharing the Bible or sharing the Bible message or sharing the gospel. That is a communist cliche that comes into modern Christianity by the people who spend their time watching Chicago, New York, and Hollywood in their living rooms instead of reading the Bible. The great evangelical doctrines of salvation are found in Romans and Galatians. They have nothing to do with letting Christ come into your life. There's one case in the New Testament where Christ is said to come into anybody's life. The expression is foreign to the writer of Scripture. So in the many uh, peculiar births we have today that pass off as new births, which might be still births or abortive births, we have this peculiar terminology that comes from New York, Hollywood, and Chicago that has nothing to do with biblical salvation. The terms used for biblical salvation in a theological setting, and of course this is a theological broadcast, are words such as expiation, propitiation, sanctification, justification, adoption, imputation, regeneration, redemption, and salvation. These great biblical words that describe the transaction of the new birth, and T-I-O-N, justification, sanctification, propitiation, imputation, redemption, salvation, adoption, and now one, remission, which although it's not as spelt with T-I-O-N, is pronounced the same way. Remission is, in effect, the remitting or passing over or foregoing or bypassing of something that's old. Hence, we call it, in common terminology, forgiveness. Now, by virtue of the fall of man, all men have become sinners. That's apparent to anybody over 20 years old who has had any experience in dealing with people. Sin is the thing that keeps a man out of heaven. Heaven is a holy place. God is a holy God. Nothing evil or unclean shall ever enter there. Unless you have perfect holiness, you're not going to make it. The only perfect holiness that has ever appeared on this earth was the perfect holiness, purity, and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The keynote to getting to heaven is forgiveness. If God forgives us our sins and doesn't impute them to us, 
imputation, then no one will be able to prevent us from entering heaven. To sinful man, forgiveness becomes the most important problem in his life. And when we say this, we mean that the psychiatrists' houses and the shrink's couches and the zoos today are filled with people who have mental problems because they lack forgiveness or think they don't have forgiveness or have refused to forgive somebody else. Outside of problems that are strictly pathological, problems that deal with uh, lesions, physical lesions or damage of the nervous system or the brain cells, that is outside of problems that are of a uh, medical nature or a physiological nature, a chemical nature, the mental problem, the neuroses of our time and most of the psychoses are due to three simple problems. Number one, the person has a guilt complex they should have and have not been forgiven by God, and they know it, and it bothers them. Or two, they think God hasn't forgiven them when God has on the basis of the finished work of his son, or else they refuse to forgive somebody else, or else somebody has refused to forgive them, and it bothers them. Now, those four things there will cage about 85% of the people that pay money to the psychiatrist for any reason other than a chemical, physiological, or a pathological, a physical lesion, or obstruction, or damage to the physical part of the body. Needing forgiveness and not having it, needing forgiveness and having it not recognizing, needing forgiveness and uh, not getting it from somebody, or needing to forgive somebody and not forgiving them. Those four problems, my dear friend, are basic. And they're not merely theological, they're psychological and psychiatric. Now, in the Old Testament, there are three words for forgiveness. One means to cover, in the sense of covering up a wrongdoing or transgression. Another means to lift away, in the sense of picking a thing up where you won't have to fool with it. And the other means to send away. That is, driving off the bad thing to where it won't bother you anymore. In the New Testament, forgiveness is the separation of the sinner from his sins through the sacrifice of Christ upon the ground of pure grace. Forgiveness is granted to the sinner on the grounds that Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to him, and he is charged with Christ's righteousness, whereas Christ is charged with his sins. The author of forgiveness, of course, is God alone. Since the sinner has broken the law of God, only God can forgive him that sin. If you steal a hammer from me and I, I forgive you for it, which I can, that's true. But if you break one of the laws of the Philippines, or one of the laws of the Spanish people, or the German people, I can't forgive you for that. If you break a law in Germany, the Germans will have to do the forgiving, or you'll pay the penalty for the law. Now, let's get that principle clear. If you violate a law in Red China, my forgiveness will get you absolutely nothing. You're going to have to clear the thing with the Chinese authorities. Now, I say that because when you break the law of God, no man upon the earth can forgive you nothing. God will have to forgive you. When Christ began to forgive sin, the Pharisees said, and rightly so, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Why doth this man speak blasphemies? Mark 2, 7. Who can forgive sins but God only? The Jews in both cases were correct, and some of your friends are incorrect, for only God can forgive sin. Never go to a human being for forgiveness when you've broken God's law, because you're going to have to deal with God. You go directly to God. 
The only mediator between you and God is Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5, where we read there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Never go to a human mediator for forgiveness. Go directly to the one that you sinned against. For the born-again child of God who is already saved, John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That is, the Lord God, the Holy One, the giver of the law, is willing to forgive the saved person on the ground of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, exactly as he is willing to forgive the unsaved man if he'll trust the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is both God and the Son of God, as well as the Son of Man, God has appointed him to forgive sin. This is apparent from Acts chapter 5, verse 31, where we read, Him, referring to Jesus Christ, had God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The channel of forgiveness then, of course, then is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is very clear to tell you in Acts 13, 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's a wonderful message of salvation for a sin-burdened soul. In Luke 7:48, the Savior personally forgave the woman and said, Thy sins are forgiven. In Mark 2, 9, Jesus said to the palsied man, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, although the Lord Jesus Christ is not bodily here today, he is ready here in the person of the Holy Spirit to forgive each one of us when we sin as children of God, and he is ready to accept the sinner who turns from his sins and receives Christ as his blood atonement. You can close your eyes right now and tell the Lord Jesus Christ about your sins if you're a child of God and they'll be forgiven. And if you're an unsaved man, you can close your eyes right now and accept Christ as your Savior and your sin will be forgiven for his name's sake. Forgiveness is never found in any church, sacrament, ordinance, or religion, but is found alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the foundation of forgiveness is simple. Forgiveness is bestowed on the ground of the Lord's compassion. For example, in Psalm 78, 38, we read, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Forgiveness is bestowed on the ground of divine justice. In John 1, 1 John 1, 9, we read, He is faithful and just forgive. God can forgive sin on the basis of the blood atonement of Christ and yet remain holy and just. Forgiveness is bestowed on the basis of the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, we read, quote, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And, of course, since the crucifixion, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins apart from the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. By blood is meant the propitiary cross work of Christ. On the cross he shed his blood as a ransom and a complete payment for your eternal redemption. God has declared the soul that sinneth it shall die. Sin brought death. And because man's sin is a consequence, he must die physically, and he's already dead spiritually, and someday he'll go in the lake of fire. God has required blood, symbolical of death, as payment for sin, and this is apparent by the fact when God covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.21, he covered them with coats of skin, which means some animal died. Abel's offering in Genesis 4 was accepted because it contained blood. Cain's offering is rejected because it did not have blood, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and the Lord said, I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. If this scene seems bloody or obscene or vulgar or nauseous to some of you people who are professedly civilized, let me remind you as kindly as I know how that you are all bloody creatures. 
and that it is your blood that kills you as well as gives you life, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. You go bad because your blood goes bad. You die because your blood knows is no good. You got your blood from your father, and his blood was no good. He got it from his grandfather, and his blood was no good. That's why you die. There's no need to put on airs about modern man and a scientific understanding when they're going to bury you with a shovel. There isn't any point in putting on airs and carrying on with all this nonsense when your destination is a hole in the ground if the Lord tarries. Let's be realistic about the thing. Some of you have leather belts on. An animal shed blood for you to hold your pants up. I mean, be realistic, you know. Instead of living in a dream world, you have leather shoes and boots on your feet. An animal shed blood for you to walk. You have several pints of blood in your body. Now, why would you think you could be saved by drinking liquor and eating bread? Aren't people peculiar? Aren't people strange? Why would you think that you could get saved by a bloodless sacrifice in an unbloody manner when you are a bloody creature yourself? Aren't people strange? I mean, in the 20th century, aren't they strange? Now, when Jesus forgives sin, he forgives all of sin, not a quarter or a half, but all. In Luke 7, 47, he said, Wherefore I say to thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. David said, The Lord forgives all thine iniquities. Psalm 103, verse 3. The Lord forgave the transgression, sin and iniquity, everything, all forgiven in Colossians 32, 1-2. And in Colossians 2:13, we read, Having forgiven you all trespasses. That, re that last reference was Psalm 32, 1 and 2. In Matthew 12, 31, we read, Wherefore I say to you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. The only one they were told to be in danger of not forgiving was the sin of saying that Christ had an unclean spirit when Christ was on this earth preaching to Israel. You never read about any unpardonable sin committed after the cross? Christ told those people when he was there in the flesh, If you say that I have an unclean spirit, You've committed an unpardonable sin, and you're in danger of eternal judgment. Why, these people worry about the unpardonable sin all the time. If they can't get as foul up as a Chinese fire drill, trying to make you think that attributing to God the works of the devil and vice versa is the unpardonable sin, he told you what the unpardonable sin was in Mark chapter 3. Did you ever read it? Now, this is the most important point. If one sin remain unforgiven, that individual cannot go to heaven, but will be forced to spend eternity in hell. Because Revelation 21, 27 says, There shall no wise enter into it anything that defileth. One sin could contaminate you in heaven forever. One sin brought death on all men. We're not talking about getting drunk or shooting your mother-in-law or robbing a bank. The sin that caused death upon all men was simply eating something that was pleasant to the eyes and good for food and desired to make one wise. Now, if that sin, sin caused Adam and Eve to get kicked out of paradise, don't you know you're not going to enter into heaven with any sins on you? You are going to have to have the sinless righteousness of God Almighty to get into New Jerusalem. And some of you people are fools to think you can earn that by your pitiful self-works and your self-righteousness and your misquotation from Hebrews and James. It's pitiful. It's tragic to see an unsaved preacher, an unsaved church member, trying to make themselves sinlessly perfect so they can get into heaven by misquoting and perverting the scriptures from Matthew, Acts, Hebrews, and James. What could be more tragic and more pitiful than that? 
The only sinless, perfect righteousness this world has ever seen was the sinless, holy, perfect, spotless righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said to the best people of his day, If your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall no wise, in no case, enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to get it in New Jerusalem unless you're sinless. Let's get that. Be holy, for I am holy. Be perfect, because I am perfect, the Bible says. You're not going to get into heaven unless you've got the righteousness of God himself. And the Lord said to the poor, uh, through Paul, to the poor self-righteous people of his day who are trying to get saved by baptism and golden rule and repentance and all this foolishness, he said, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, I realize you can misquote James and misapply Matthew and uh, take the context out of the book of Acts and pull your verse out of Hebrews to prove that you have a right to go to hell while proving you're right, but it won't do you any good after you've been in hell 20 million years to quote Scripture. I mean, quoting Scripture in hell isn't going to do you any good whether you whether you're quote it right or quote it wrong. You're going to have to have God's righteousness, and God's righteousness is Jesus Christ. Many expect to wait till death to know whether or not they've been forgiven and are righteous. But the gospel brings the glad news that the forgiveness of present possession, Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. John said, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, the conditions of forgiveness are clear. First of all, you're told to repent, to turn from your sins. Then you're told to exercise faith in the gospel, not faith in baptism or faith in Acts 2.38. Faith in Acts 2.38 couldn't save a dead horse. By grace you save through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should both. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The obedience of faith is to trust Christ, not your water baptism. To obey the gospel is never to get baptized in water. That's never it. To obey the gospel is to exercise faith in it. Now, understand this from reading Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 16. And beware of any man that takes you to hell with him, quoting Acts chapter 2, when he ought to be in Romans 1 and Romans 10 and Romans 16, where you're told that to obey the gospel is to exercise faith in it and obey it from the heart. It had nothing to do with outward acts given to Jewish believers at Pentecost on a Jewish feast day. Now, of course, those of us who believe the Bible know the Bible know perfectly well that a Christian after he's born again should get baptized, but as far as that goes, he should pray and pass out tracts and tithe and win people to Christ and have a family order and get rid of the boob tube. So what? Imagine a man confining obeying the gospel to water baptism and then keeping a television set in his home and watching the belly dancers on the Johnny Carson show. Imagine that. Imagine a fellow getting in a pulpit the Sunday morning and talking about Acts 2.38 as obeying the gospel and keeping in his uh, home man newspapers with a movie uh, section in it, a movie ad section in it, will make a pornography shop look like uh, a picnic. Imagine that fellow talking about obeying the gospel by going through one act. <laughs> Boy, we got the winners these days, don't we? 
All right. The condition of forgiveness, receiving Christ as Savior. And if a man has already received Christ as his Savior, then confession of sin. If we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The unconfessed sin, the life of the child of God, cannot be forgiven, even though it's placed away at Calvary and you have forgiveness of sins on Calvary. The unconfessed sin is a barrier in the fellowship between the believer and his Lord. David said, When he got into trouble, I acknowledge my sin to thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. This was David's experience in the Old Testament, and his experience of the born-again believer in the New Testament, too, who is never completely free from sin until he is dead. Now, at this point, we should get something very clear in regard to the forgiveness of sins. When the born-again child of God has received Christ as Savior and is washed in the blood and has God completed redemption, his sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. They're all forgiven. Past, present, and future, they're nailed to the cross. How does this take place? Because he is identified with the death of Christ, nailed to the cross, crucified with Christ. As Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, his entire life, past, present, and future, is now one with the eternal life of the one who died on the cross. This settles once and for all the philosophical theological problem about the believer's future sins. You don't have any future outside of Jesus Christ. If you're saved or in Christ and he's in you, you have eternal life and eternal life is in you and you're in eternal life and your whole life is past, present, and future identified with Jesus Christ. Therefore, from a judicial legal standpoint, your sins are forgiven, remitted, expiated, propitiated, redeemed, taken care of, done away, and put away forever. Now, when we talk about sin the life of believer, we have to deal with another factor. When the believer sins, although his sins have been put away at Calvary and they're taken care of, he still reaps the effects of that sin in this life. Notice to the Christian, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Notice further all, furthermore that sin in the life of the Christian, although it's taken care of at Calvary, can cause the Christian to lose his joy, the joy of the Lord is your strength, can cause the Christian to lose his fellowship with God and get out of fellowship, can cause him to be chastened, for this cause many are sickly, many are weak, and many sleep among you. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. So the child of God, with sin in his life, lose a number of things. Even though they're forgiven at Calvary for his name's sake, they cause him to lose fellowship with God, lose his joy, lose his testimony, lose his inheritance, lose his reward at the judgment seat of Christ, and many times lose his health and sometimes lose his life. And for this cause, the Christian should confess his sins, and if we confess our sins, John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness should be easy for a Christian, as pictured in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And, of course, along these lines, we should forgive others. In Matthew 6, 15, we read, If you forgive not men that trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And from the New Testament standpoint, this side of Pentecost, under grace, Paul says, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, the Christian should always keep his heart in such a condition that at any time, under any condition, he could forgive his worst enemy at a moment's notice. And I can't be too emphatic or explicit in stating that. Uh, those of us who use very harsh and strong, pungent, clear, plain language are often accused of hate by a bunch of white law sepulchers who speak sweet and talk mushy mouth and who would cut your throat as quick as look at you. Now, this thing has to come from the heart. And if you're a born-again child of God, down in your heart, you cannot hold a grudge against somebody interminably. And if they come to you and ask you for forgiveness, you can grant that forgiveness in two seconds without a second thought. And you don't have to pray about anything. You can forgive on the spot. If you have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the redemption and remission of sins, and know how good Christ has been to you, you shouldn't have any trouble forgiving other people for their meanness to you. And many whitewashed pious sepulchers that talk the most about the Holy Ghost spend a great deal of time trying to get broadcasts off the air and preachers out of the pulpit who say things they don't like because they have bitterness and hatred in their heart. It just doesn't come out of their mouth. They're very careful to keep that old plastic smile up there and that pious talk where people will think they're dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. Which Spirit? You ought to be able to forgive quick if you're saved. Now, as often as a child of God sins and confesses his sins, the blood of Jesus Christ is available to cleanse. Repentance involves forsaking sin and promising by God uh, God's strength not to repeat it, and claiming God's grace and God's help in getting rid of it. And, of course, to understand that and undertake that tremendous job, we have to avail ourselves of the material in Romans chapter 6, which should be read very carefully. The question is propounded in Romans chapter 6, Shall we continue in the sin that grace may be abound? And Paul answered in Romans 6, 2, God forbid. How often should we forgive someone who sins against us? The Savior said, Seventy times seven, Matthew eighteen twenty one to thirty five, four hundred and ninety times. Have you ever forgiven anybody that much? Well, that's what's laid down on the child of God who knows the Lord and is asking the Lord for advice and forgiving. He's told to forgive each other as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And if God has forgiven you, then you certainly can forgive others. Now, this completes our lesson on forgiveness for today's theological seminar on next week's broadcast. We're going to talk about what happens when a sinner believes on Jesus Christ. That is, we're going to talk about the great doctrines of salvation, reconciliation, justification, propitiation, redemption, regeneration. What happens when a man believes in Jesus Christ? Christ has not come into his life. That's the modern cliché. He doesn't become involved. That's the modern magazine talk. But certain things do happen when a believer comes to Jesus Christ and believes on him as his, as his Savior, and we'll talk about that on next week's broadcast. May the Lord bless you, and good day.